Welcome to Game Night with the Saints. We're your hosts, Jess and Brad St. Pierre. We're a husband and wife who have a passion for board games, and this podcast is dedicated to sharing that passion. So, episode three, we're back. I'm pretty proud of us for staying on schedule. Our <laughs> toddler is teething her two-year molars, so Brad and I have not been getting a ton of sleep lately. But if this is the first episode you're joining us for, I'm going to take you through our format. Every episode, Brad and I share a board game memory from the past couple of weeks, and then we go into notable news in our crowdfunding corner, and then we usually jump into our game or topic of the week. This week, we are going to be talking about Brew from Pandasaurus Games, but let's back up. What's your board game memory for this week, Brad? Sure. So uh, we had my parents down um, last week and we introduced them to Downforce, which was actually a new game for us as well. We picked it up because we thought we could potentially play it with our with my parents who are not board gamers. Uh, and in that, I think it was a resounding success. But uh, anyway, for anyone who doesn't know, Downforce is basically a game where uh, you pseudo-control various cars to go around on a track, and then you bet on how well the car is going to do. So we played the race, and my car didn't win. But I had bet on the car that did win all three of the betting phases, and I ended up pretty handily winning the game despite losing the race. And you can kind of just see things click into place for people around the table. Oh, it's not a racing game at all. It's a betting game. And I just love those kinds of moments in board games. I think they're kind of magical. Um, Because modern board games are just so much more than they appear. They can really subvert people's expectations and come out better for it. And I think Downforce did that for my parents um, and kind of showed them a little bit more about how deep this world can really get. And I definitely appreciated that. I have to say about that particular game, my favorite part of it was that your mother asked you if you were allowed to bet on the same car yeah, all three times. A little, little salt there for sure. <laughs> but uh, the other great thing about Downforce, the rule book's only four pages long, so you can go, well, you can read it yourself. <laughs> uh, how about you, Jess? What's your board game memory for the week? So mine actually has to do with your parents' visit as well. We had a belated birthday party for Brad's dad when he was here so that Jaina, our teething toddler, could get the opportunity to have a birthday party with her Pepe. And he had on his birthday list the Play Nine, which is a card game that uh, Brad's parents had played with some of their friends back home. And it's similar to a game played with normal playing cards called golf that my family has played for years. And while we were playing this play nine game, it brought back a lot of memories of playing the golf card game with my grandfather who passed away a little over two years ago. And for that little bit of time, it was almost like my grandfather was sitting at the table with me saying, reduce, Jess, reduce, because the object of the game is to have as few points as possible at the end of the game. So for me, that was just like how I talked about last episode, board games have a way, just like songs, of taking you to a place in the past of good memories. And that was another wonderful memory for me, sitting around the table playing a game. Sure. 
So we have been talking after we finished recording our last episode about our notable news and crowdfunding corner and realized we hadn't really done any news the first two episodes. So we wanted to at least bring you a little news this time. So Brad, what do you have to share today? Uh, sure. So Fantasy Flight Games just announced a, a new game, a Game of Thrones Betwixt, which is probably one of the worst board game titles I have ever heard. <laughs> um, but Having said that, the game itself looks pretty interesting. It looks mostly like a hand management game um, where you're trying to consolidate your power and have the most powerful small council, you know, that are thematic to the books. But the interesting thing is the scoring, where it kind of uses a scoring similar to um, Between Two Castles or The Castles of Mad King Ludwig, if you're familiar with either of those games, where your score is an amalgamation of the scores of the other people next to you. So you kind of have to help them along to do better yourself. So it'll be interesting to see because it's set in the Game of Thrones universe, which is obviously very cutthroat and political intrigue and all that. Um, That's what I'm setting here. Like, I can't really imagine Cersei working with anyone next to her at the table. (laughs) Well, you know, you prop them up as a vassal state or something uh, to make yourself do better um but yeah so that's uh betwixt a game of thrones betwixt by uh, fantasy flight games just announced and then uh other notable news pandasaurus games just announced um that wild space and the loop are delayed to mid-september both titles that we're looking forward to so unfortunate but uh very understandable with the global shipping crisis being what it is Yeah, and I mean, we, Brad and I had talked a little bit when we were out looking for news that there wasn't a lot, and then we realized Gen Con is also right around the corner, so we expect when we record our next episode that we will definitely have more announcements coming out, because I think we're due to record over the weekend of Gen Con, so... I also did see, though, there have been publishers that have announced they're backing out of attending in-person conventions. I saw Plaid Hat had made that announcement in the past few days that they won't be attending Gen Con and Origins in person, at least this year. Yeah, well, I mean, you got to keep your people safe. It's a scary world right now, and, you know, I have to applaud anybody that puts the personal safety of their employees above, you know massive sales that they would probably make at these conventions but uh i personally be willing to support any company that that toes that line right now because i know it's getting harder in public perception yeah absolutely so i have a bit of news that isn't related to the industry but to brad and i personally that i'm excited to share we had ordered back in april from boardgametables.com a custom board game table and it arrived just a couple days ago and we got it set up the two of us which was a feat (laughs) um but we haven't had a chance to play on it so we'll have a full review later of it but i just wanted to share that this is the first time our podcast is being recorded on top of our new custom board game table yeah yeah it's great so what do you have for uh your crowdfunding corner this week jess It's the same issue I've had the past two weeks (laughs) is when I go out, I find these games I fall in love with, and I'm like, oh, Brad, we might need to back this one. So it's called Wild Serengeti. It's by Bad Comet. 
It is their third Kickstarter. And it took me a little bit this week, actually, to find my game of the for our crowdfunding quarter. But when I did, I fell in love with this one right away. And the first thing that captured me was the box artwork that they shared. And then at this point, I think you guys all know I'm a sucker for meeples. And they have really adorable animal meeples with this game. (laughs) So um, a little bit about it is it's set in the Serengeti. And you are a, um, I don't know if you're a videographer or photographer. Yeah, a documentary maker or something. But you're out there filming a wildlife documentary. So you're competing against other players to make the best documentary. And it's for one to four players. The age says 14 plus, but we learned a fun little fact about that with games this week. Do you want to share that? Yeah, I really wish I remembered the source. Um, But I was on Reddit and I was reading about how game age rankings occur. And apparently for some components, if you want your game to have a lower age ranking, you have to do swallow and choking tests and most board game publishers are just not set up to do that so they just slap 14 plus on the box regardless of the actual age they probably think somebody could play because they're just not prepared to do the additional consumer advocate testing to get a lower rating yeah and i mean that could definitely be the case here perhaps um obviously we haven't played this game and i do want to confess to our listeners i never watch reviews or Um, playthrough videos of games that Brad and I may purchase and then review for you later because I just like to go in with a blank slate. That's a personal choice of mine. So Wild Serengeti is for one to four players, uh, 14 plus, like I said, and it plays, it's really interesting, the time window. It says it can play anywhere from 30 to 120 minutes. So I don't know if that, you know, has to do with the player count. Um, but if for like two players that plays at 30, it could really feel fill a good niche for us. Yeah. Um, but I like how it was described as a puzzle-solving game with elements of set collection and engine building. And so it looks like to me when they say puzzle-solving that it's like a pattern-solving puzzle using the animal meeples to fulfill what they call scene cards. And then the scene cards give you rewards. And... I really like that because growing up, I always loved you could buy like those box puzzles that you had to like fit the shapes together and make it work. I always loved things like that growing up. And this is kind of like that where you are trying to get the animals and move them to make your scene cards. So I I think it looks like a really interesting game. Yeah, I mean, it uh, definitely has that spatial puzzle element. So people that like or dislike that be aware. Um but the production values are really solid. The price point is eminently reasonable, uh, coming in at $52 US for the Kickstarter version. Um, which, you know, in this brave new world of $120 plus games because of uh, rising costs, that's very refreshing. And then I had mentioned this, I think it was maybe on our first podcast, that when we're looking at adding to our collection, we're always looking down the road of if Jane is going to play with us. And one of the things that I don't think sometimes people think about is, is a board game able to be educational? 
And I actually feel when you're dealing with something like wild Serengeti, it absolutely has that potential because you can teach your child about an entire geographical region and then all of the wildlife living there, you know, just by giving them the opportunity to play a game and having family talk around the table about it. Sure. So um, it's fully funded and you have till September 17th to back it on Kickstarter. Great. So what about you, Brad? What did you pick this week? All right. I chose Mythic Mischief, and it's published by either 4 Studio or IV Studio. Not sure which. Um, I don't think it's Roman numerals. I think it's IV Studio. But uh, it's on GameFound, and it's an asymmetric abstract game where you play as various different monster factions in a library trying to simultaneously evade the tomb keeper and force other players into his path. Um, I was initially interested in it because of the claim of asymmetry that makes it to the table. Um, I love asymmetry in games, but I do think there's a bit of a tax with having too many of them in your collection because every bit of asymmetry that is, you know, above a certain threshold requires additional rules grit, right? Um, We, you know, in our collection specifically, Root has kind of replaced Vest, um, the Crystal Caverns, because Root is just so much easier to teach. And that's a highly asymmetric game as well, but with Vast, every character has their own stats and their own terminology and all that stuff, and it's just, it gets really hard to bring to the table for, for new people. Yeah, I I absolutely agree that, especially since, as I had told everyone last episode, you are our rules man in the house, that asymmetrical (laughs) games, we really love them for you and I, but it it does absolutely add a tax to the people in your game party who are responsible for, you know, reading the rules and explaining it. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know that Mythic Mischief is actually going to be able to deliver on that promise. Um looking at the different factions and stuff, they all play pretty differently. But I think what kind of holds it together is that they all interact with the map in the same way where they get to move the the bookcases around and stuff. Uh, and maybe that holds it together a little bit, but I do think there's still going to be um, rules overhead for learning each different faction. And, and, you know, it's okay for asymmetrical games to lean into that, but it's kind of a, how many can you have in your collection if, uh, you know, they're all so different, right? And so the theme of this game is they're trying to get the other factions in trouble, right? Right, yeah. So I've saved this for the podcast. I didn't tell you this before about your pick this week, but it reminds me of Harry Potter. (laughs) Yeah, I think, yeah, I don't, just as dance around the fact that I really don't care for Harry Potter at all. Um, That's a subject for a different time, I think, but uh, she's laughing at me right now. But uh, yeah, so it, it is a little bit, I think, like that. But, you know, they're non-human people with the exception of, I think, the, the wizards or the witches or something are, are human, obviously. But uh, it, it definitely has that vibe, you know, magical school, stuff like that. Um, and I have a, a confession as well on this one. I was actually interested in it because I'm a sucker for puns. And they spelled school, S apostrophe G-H-O-U-L. And I was I was sold, and and instead of stretch goals, they have stretch ghouls. So yeah, mythic mischief. 
uh, and that's on GameFound through September 24th. Okay, so I think it's time to move into our game of the week. All right, so uh, today we're looking at Brew, which is designed by Steve Torres and published by Pandasaurus Games. Apologies to uh, Mr. Torres if I butchered his name. Um, so in Brew, the seasons are in total disarray, and different forests are experiencing different or even multiple seasons at the same time. And as a mis- mystic of this you know, magic forest, you're tasked with bringing balance back to nature. Uh, to that end, you'll gather ingredients to brew potions and befriend magic woodland creatures. Um, you know, and you'll send out other workers to gather stuff for you. Uh, these are represented mostly by dice. Uh, and the gameplay is, is essentially worker placement meets area control uh, with a little engine building spliced in via the creatures. Uh, your workers are dice that are rolled at the start of each round, and the symbol you roll determines where they can be placed for the most part. Um, and there's two types of dice, forged dice and elemental dice. On your turn, you can do three things. You can place a worker, brew a potion, and drink a potion in any order. Um, but that's it. There's no exceptions to that rule. Um, and in addition to placing workers to get resources, they kind of act as your troops for the area control, area majority portion of the game, whereby the person who has the most control of a forest at the end of a round uh, gets that forest and forests are worth a ton of points. Um, although you do get points pretty much for everything in this game. Um, and the person with the most points at the end of four rounds is the winner. Yeah, so Brew is actually the third game in our collection from Pandasaurus, and we kind of decided to buy it based off what a great experience we had with our first two, which was uh, Dinosaur Island, which we really enjoy playing and is a worker placement, and then Gods Love Dinosaurs, which... I that's one of these games that when we played it the first time it brought me so much joy I looked at my husband I'm like can we play it again and so we decided um, to go ahead and get brew one because I love the artwork that they had showcased for it when they first announced it I'm I'm all about you guys know at this point I'm all about you know cute or beautiful artwork and I'm a sucker for it so it also ticks a lot of boxes for us right now with our games, which is, you know, it's easy set up. In fact, they designed the insert of the box so that all the little tokens, like the resources for your potion and the VP point tokens, all fit in the box. You don't need to have your separate cups or anything like that. Yeah, they do and they don't. I. It's really weird how the insert is set up to me. Um because like the dice have a place, the cards have a place, the characters have a place, the forest cards have a place, but then it's kind of a well with four different pieces in the in the middle. Um, and it's like, why aren't these just individual holes, right? <laughs> that probably had to do with something with whoever their manufacturer was. Yeah, probably. I mean, as we were saying a little bit ago, wherever you can save cost in your board game development, but I appreciate that they at least attempted to make their insert. Sure as setup friendly as possible. And I also like that for the dice, they match the specific, um, is it shaman? Uh, I think they're mystics. Mystics. The particular mystic that you're, you're using. So I like the color matchup of your forged dice with your mystic. Yeah, definitely. And I have to say brew is really not what I was expecting. 
um, you, you, we lifted off, listed off a whole bunch of what the game is, right? Um, and, and you would imagine, oh, you know, it's going to be this thing, you know, there's got Euro mechanisms in it. And I have a feeling for a lot of tables, you have two people sit down and one of them is a big Euro player and he's like, oh, it's worker placement. So, you know, I'll place my workers and occasionally I won't get the spot I want, but that's okay. Right. And then, um, the other guy at the table is a big area control guy and he's like, all right, it's area control. I'm going to win all the things. Right. And I'm going to be aggressive and I'm going to force my way into these situations. And, you know, one of those people may not have that great of a time with brew if the expectations are not set up front. <laughs> they, they do bring a lot of mechanics. And what was, what was the comparison you used about all the things that it promises and does you? Oh yeah. Yeah. So it kind of sounds like those overhyped Kickstarter games, you know, where they're just like, Oh yeah, this is your, uh, auction work replacement tableau building hybrid with a splash of area control and engine building and also like you go to the moon for some reason and you know whatever right it just sounds like a half-baked kickstarter game but i will say here um with brew the disparate mechanisms hang together really well and they really support each other and it does feel like a cohesive game so not you know an overblown kickstarter but it sounds like one on paper. <laughs> well, and I, I, I'll be honest, that's the thing I love most about this game, about Brew, is the way there's so many different traditional game mechanics and the way they blend together and their recipe just works. The end product works very well. Uh, you know, when you're, when you're collecting your creature cards, they each have a season associated with them. And the forest cards... Um, when you're playing two player, there's three forest up each round and that changes depending on the player count, how many forests you have. But for Brad and I, with this pandemic, it's mostly been us playing. So we've only played right. the two player version of this. So, you know, when you put, uh, one of your forged dice down to tame a creature and you select your creature, you have to, you know, decide, well, I want my creature based off its ability, but I also want my creature to be able to get three points instead of one. So I have to try to win area control of, let's say I pick, we'll call it the winter creature. I need a winter forest, but if there's none up, you may pass up on the winter creature that round, even if you like its ability a little bit better, because you may not know because the deck is a little bit randomized if you'll be able to get control of a winter forest later in the game. Right, right. Yeah, and I... uh... I think the strategy of brew kind of reveals itself in layers because that's something I didn't even think about, you know, matching creatures to forests the first game we played, right? Um, The first game I was kind of like, okay, I'm going to place my workers, get these resources, brew these potions, maybe I'll use them, maybe I won't, Um, you know, and maybe I'll try to win this forest here, but if I can't, whatever, it's not not the end of the world. Um, And then, you know, we played it again and... You know, all of a sudden I started realizing, oh, this potion that moves two dice is, you know, really good for this. And this potion that removes one die is really good for this. And I can use the wind elemental dice to kind of switch which forest I'm going for and stuff like that. And I feel like every time we've played, I've learned something new about the game. And it's kind of just revealing itself in these wonderful layers that, frankly, not a lot of other games have lately because they only expect you to play it 
you know, three times or something. Whereas with this, I feel like uh, Steve O'Tor has really tried to build in a game that you come back to again because you learn something new every time. Yeah, and I think for our listeners who maybe haven't played Brew, I want to I wanna take a step back and I want to kind of set up the the table for you, so to speak. So you have your forest cards, right? And I'm just going to keep using how we play with a two-player because that's what I know. So for us, we have our three forest cards. They change each round. You either will win a forest and it comes over to you at the end of the round, or um, if nobody wins it, it goes away. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But then you have your essentially worker placement board. And Brew plays in four rounds, so that's another box it really ticks for us. Is It's a very fast like yeah. game for time you know well fast is wrong work short and the amount of time it takes to play because there's only four rounds and the thing i love is your board changes each round so there's a daytime board and a nighttime board and your elemental dice and each player gets um two of those at least in a two-player game is that yeah, a period period okay and there are certain spots that only your elemental dice can go on on the player board and what the spaces change from day to night both for your normal dice and for the elemental dice which is a really nice touch because it has another layer of play for you yeah and let, let's talk about those elemental dice a little more um i think they're actually called element dice but i'm going to say elemental a bunch too probably <laughs> Sorry. Um, but they're really interesting because those work replacement spots in the main town are incredibly powerful for the element dice but putting an element dice in the forest is also usually really powerful um the water dice collects three resources the wind die lets you take back one of your forge dice or i guess somebody else's you give back to them but you would never do that um and then the fire die goes on top of another die and basically cancels out that dies um contribution to control of that forest uh, and all three of those effects are really powerful but the um, spaces on the main board for the element dice are also incredibly good uh, as an example the daytime wind board gets you an energy berry which is basically a wild resource and a creature i think um, and you know that's that's basically better than any two forest spots right and uh so there's this real tension between uh, using them early to get to the main board and using them later to help control the forest or use their forest effects, which are really powerful. Because the other thing we haven't talked about is the element dice are neutral. They don't contribute to your control of forests or anybody else's. So you can use them. Well, I was just going to say, why don't you pause because we haven't really explained how control of the force works that there's symbols on your forged dice that match up so why don't okay sure why don't we back up for a second and explain that yeah so uh at the start of your turn you uh roll your four forage dice and your two element dice and then they all have different symbols the element dice we just went over they have water fire and wind um and then the forged dice have um a set of symbols as well, which are I think are like sticks, a leaf, rock. Um, but anyway, they can only go on spaces that match their symbol in a forest if you want to gather with them. 
Um, so when you go to place dice, you kind of have to look at your dice and figure out which force you can actually reasonably get while still gaining resources. Because the other thing you can do is you can force a dice onto a space by paying a resource of that type, but that's like that's a net loss, right? So it's better to contest force where you have multiple matching symbols and in force where you don't have those symbols, maybe you can use your element dice um, to bring it back to the, the conversation that we were talking about. Because the way that force control works um, is the person that has the most of their type of force dice in a forest at the end of a round gains control of that forest. But there's a catch. You can't be tied with anybody else's forage dies, right? So if you both have two, nobody gets that forest. Um, and you also have to have more than the number of element dice in that forest. So you can use these element dice to strategically block off forests that you can't necessarily compete with based on your roles or whatever, uh, or that you're just not that interested in. And you still get a ton of benefit from them. But if you're saving them for later in the rounds where you can contest forests after you see some of your opponent's placement spots, you're almost certainly not getting those main board actions. So that's where the tension with the element dice really comes into play, I think. Yeah, I agree. So continuing our setup, underneath your board, your placement, your worker placement, essentially board, under the game board, then you would have your potions and you get resources you can get there's a couple spaces on the board like brad had mentioned that you can use dice to get the resources you need to brew your potions but primarily i feel they come from the forest and then under that are your creatures now your creatures can also give you resources they can give you actions there's a variety of things that um, both the creatures and the potions do it's worth noting with the potions, you the actions Brad talked about when he was describing the game of brew and drink, you can only do one each each turn. Right. Or each dice play. And roughly if you think each round. Each is it each round? Yeah. Oh no, each turn. You're each right. Each turn. Because right. so what I was about to say is you have is it I'm trying to mentally do the math, six dice total when you roll, right? right. So you roughly because give or take your potions and your creatures can impact this you roughly have six turns per round so you have the opportunity to potentially brew and optionally drink six potions and that's they play in them with your creatures of how you decide to do you know your placement with your dice what spaces you go after, which forest you want, as I mentioned, based off the um, creature's natural forest habitat. Right, yeah, and, and important to note, it's pretty uncommon to actually be able to brew a potion every turn, um, with one exception, which we'll get to when we talk about the asymmetric player powers. Um, so, so really, you're not even going to get those 24 potions in a game right um so so you really got to use them sparingly but they have a variety of effects of effects that um can really help you either contest control of the forest or get the placement spot you want or whatever the case may be and their other main purpose which i think works really well is to minimize the dice randomness right because nothing is worse than going okay you know looking at the forest i need a bunch of rocks and leaves and i roll nothing but sticks right 
that would be awful if that was the end of the discussion. But because some of these potions exist, they go, you know, maybe one is well, flip this die to any face you want or re-roll all your unused dice or whatever the case may be. And you can really mitigate a lot of the dice rolling aspects. Right. And I feel that some people, when we talk about, there are people that just hate randomness in their games because there's no clear path sometimes. I feel that this is the, the, the potions are the mitigation of that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's definitely still going to be some randomness built in, but it's a lot less than you would think for a game that is, a, you know, using six dice every round. Mm-hmm. So why don't you talk about the um, mystics and the asymmetrical powers? Okay, sure. Um, yeah, so you can play brew two ways. where One where everyone is just symmetrically powered and doesn't have any special power. But each of the four mystics also comes with an asymmetrical player power. And if, if everyone agrees, you can decide to use those instead. And these are really interesting to me because in a game with as much conflict as Brew has, they feel different levels of impactful, which in a multiplayer game probably puts like a target on your back if you are overly aggressive using your character's power. Um, and so examples of the powers, uh, Lyric, as an example, who we talked about earlier, can use an energy berry to substitute for two of any other resource when he brews a potion. So he's the character that can probably brew a potion every, every turn. Um, Lello can spend an energy berry to take one of his forage dice and put it on top of another person's dice, basically swinging control of that forest his way sharply by removing one of the opponent's dice and putting one of his. Ren, um, they use a energy berry to essentially, when they place their forged dice, they can choose to spend, it's either one or two energy berries, I don't remember, um, to place it as a tame animal spot, which is pretty powerful because it's as in a little bit of an engine building because the game I used Ren and the power they have it I also had a character or excuse me a creature that every time I tamed an a, a, another creature I was able to get a VP point which is the their how they I guess it does stand for victory points. Yeah, these are just victory points. Yeah. <laughs> I told you I hate that. Just say, <laughs> just say points. But anyway, the and so it was an a, it's a nice little engine building because Ren also lets you have um, you can only usually have three active creatures and Ren's ability also lets you have four. Right. Right, but that's the thing, right? And then the fourth power is you can spend two energy berries to win a tie if you are tied for control of a forest. But Ren's power and the fourth character's power, whose name escapes me right now, uh, their powers are not super impactful on the board themselves. Getting a fourth creature is actually really, really good, but you don't necessarily see that impact on control of the forest or number of potions in hand or something the way that you do with Lyric and Lello. Um, so if you're overzealous with you know, Lello as an example and you're putting your die on top of other people's dies you know, every, every turn, they're going to come after you. right? They're going to start using their potion effects to clear off your dice, switch your dice out, all that stuff. right? And so it's really interesting the level of impact these different powers have on the metagame at the table 
in a multiplayer game of brew. Well, and you bring up a good point about coming after one another because we've only played it against each other. There was a little bit, and I think it is because we played it two players, and I we have both talked that we are anxious to have some of our friends over to try it at four players right. to feel the difference. Um, because I don't usually like games where I feel like it's a take that to, you know, Brad to me or me to him because this is our spending time together. Right. And um, I think you see more of it in the two player, that feeling, because I do have to stop him and from constantly putting his dice on top of my dice when I need the forest, especially if I'm trying to win more forest because I'm playing with Ren who has four creatures you know, and I'm trying to right. build a little creature army. I need, I definitely need more forest for her little engine. So. Right. Right. And I think, um, that's a really good point. I think in addition to being deeper with every play, brew has become more cutthroat with every play as well. <laughs> um, and that might really turn off some people. And I don't think it's necessarily like take that cause you can usually see it coming. Um, if you're keeping track of what the opponent's potions are and all that stuff and how many dice they have left and which placements they can do, you can usually kind of prepare for it, but you have to know going in that there's conflict here and you're going to get in each other's way and there are effects that will, you know, mess up your, your plan or whatever. And you just got to be prepared for that. But the, the, that's what makes those characters so interesting because they're not, in my opinion, disparate power levels they're just disparate levels of activity i guess that kind of draw the eye to a specific character but as an example right ren's power to have four creatures lets you build some absurdly powerful creature energy uh creature engines uh and get some real synergies going there but it's all off the table um not necessarily in the force as it were so you don't really see that. Well, and that brings up, you you mentioned it, just what you said just now. There's a lot to keep track of in this game, and those are the games I love. Like we talked about it last episode with Lost Runes of Arnak, that even though you only had two workers in that game, that there was a lot happening on and around the board that you had to pay attention and bruise the exact same way with the, you know, multiple different mechanics. To your point, you're looking, you know, the three forests we're looking at each game, I have to see what dice do I have? What dice does Brad have? And then each round of his placement or his acquiring of creatures or my acquiring of creatures and potions is planning ahead to make sure, because like Brad said, you really want a forest. You want to walk away with, with, you know, as many as possible each round. And so you have to really pay attention while he you know, he brewed that potion, but he hasn't, you know, he hasn't drank the potion yet. That's going to let him place an additional dice around. So like, or excuse me, a turn. So like it's, it's, it's beautiful in that way. And I feel like you said, that's what makes it more cutthroat is you and I get better and better at watching each other. And as we learn the creature's abilities and the potions and the way they interact, our engine building gets better each game we play. So we get a little bit more aggressive as trying to, you know, use all of our knowledge now to play the best turn slash best round each game. 
Right, right. Yeah, and it's it's interesting, right? Because you start off when you're first playing, and you're just like, well, I rolled my dice, here are my options, let's go, right? But then by game three, I was like, oh, okay, she brewed the potion that lets her remove an element dice, and she brewed the potion that lets her swap two dice. So I've got to worry about this and that when I'm trying to claim this force that's worth seven points and this one that's worth five or whatever. And you just you, you just go down the rabbit hole so deep with this game if you want to that, you know, I don't think there ever is an optimal move, but you can really start planning a lot better the more you understand with this game. And there's something we haven't talked about. We talked about that the the forest are worth the most VP. And we talked about that the creatures, um, if you get a forest and you have a creature that matches it at the end of the game, that makes the creature worth three. If not, and you have a creature, they're worth one. But the potions are worth victory points as well. Right. And those victory points vary. I think it goes from, I think it's two. I think it starts yeah, at two. Yeah, two is the lowest. Two to maybe five. Yeah, it's either five or seven. Yeah, it's, so... Um, and it feels like, though, that the victory points aren't necessarily tied to the difficulty to brew as much as the difficulty to brew is tied to the potion's actual ability. And Brad right. and I were talking about that a little bit because I think there was one that needed seven um, of its resource to brew. And I'm like, why is this only worth four points? It takes seven things. <laughs> this should be worth like eight VP. But it had a super strong ability to essentially take one of, I think it was um, maybe to take one of your forged dice back and make it playable in your hand, I think. So like that's a super strong ability because you essentially get to use your dice twice. And where that might come in is if you know you have a controllable forest or B, you are not going to ever win control of a forest. You can take it back and maybe get control of another forest. Yeah, or salvage a situation. Or Yeah, you can salvage a situation, like Brad said. Or if you realize I'm not going to get anything with this, you might be able to tame another creature by using a space on the board or you know, just get a resource that you want because you can see the potions out there that you want to brew. So, um, yeah, I think it's a really rich scoring system. One game, Brad had so many potions. I don't even know if you drank most of no, them I, but you I just like had my hand at the end of the game <laughs> yeah you had that must have been um what was the the one the the mystic oh, lyric yeah, yeah. That, i think that was a lyric game you had him yeah but yeah i want to uh go back to the creatures uh, for a minute because that's kind of the third pillar of brew in my mind if if you know the worker placement is pillar one and the area control slash area majority is pillar two the creatures and the engine building that they represent kind of forms pillar three for me because the games where I've done best in brew are the games where I've been able to take the creature abilities and kind of chain them together into an engine that makes my turns super efficient. And I love that you can do that. Um, and it's something I actively look for now. Um, but you know, when we started again, we were just kind of randomly drafting creatures to see what they did. But now it's kind of like, if I get this guy and this guy, that's basically like three actions in one. So definitely want to go for that, right? Um, As an example, an engine I built in one of our games is every time I gather in an autumn forest, I was able to get an extra resource, scorch a forest space, and the first time I scorched a forest space, I get an energy berry. So 
it informed my play because I was automatically looking for autumn forest spaces to place my dice on because I had created this little engine where basically when I place a die on an autumn forest, I'm getting three actions in one all of a sudden. Yeah, so Brad talked about scorching the forest, and I don't know that we've talked about that mechanic till just now. So scorching a forest, there is um, there's a little fire piece, essentially, component that when you scorch a forest, it goes over that dice space in the forest, and then right. now no one can use it. Now, I don't even think you element dice can no, nothing, place there. Nothing, can nothing go that there. I'm aware of removes the scorch. So... I want to talk about the Scorch because when we first ran into it, it's the part, um, and I've said up to this point that I think Brew is a beautiful game from the art design, that it's a beautiful game in the way that the mechanics all work together in such a wonderful blend of play. Where it fell short for me was the first time Brad started Scorching the Forest, and I felt, <laughs> what? Like this, it, was a massive, it was a massive theme disconnect for me because I felt like I knew it was a competitive game but it was really then aware to me we're working against each other and we will burn the whole world down to keep you from getting more points <laughs> and I was like why wait we should be working these adorable little creatures we're supposed to be saving them what are we doing here and it was really for me kind of jarring and I will say for me that's a negative for brew is that the theme disconnects from the quote-unquote story and there's no explanation for it right there's nothing in the yeah i don't i don't recall anything um so as we talked about a little bit earlier the theme is your mystics trying to restore balance to the forest um and the elements and all that so, so i think that's a good point why aren't you working together to do that um why isn't this a cooperative game right you're telling me that the four separate mystic tribes of this of these forests decided this was the time to have you know some kind of war where you will, as Jess was saying, literally burn a forest to the ground so that nobody can have it. And one of the one of the element dice spots, and I think it's maybe the night side, where the fire element literally can scorch all unoccupied yeah. <laughs> spaces. Like that's an ability, and I've used it. I have used it because if you go first and you put your dice in the highest number forest and you want that, right? That's the one you absolutely want. Let's say, cause there's four rounds. So the night forest or the, excuse me, the night side of the board is the last board side. So, you know, this is it. It's do or die time. If you're going to, if you're going to, you know, bring home a lot of VP this round. So I would place a dice and let's say that, you know, eight VP forest that I wanted for my winter creature. And then I would play my, I would drink my potion that lets me place an extra dice. Well, here you go. Fire dice. I just burned down the rest of the winter forest. Like, <laughs> but you've got a home for that one guy. <laughs> I got a home for that one, that one guy. And I've made sure that Brad's winter creature dies. Like that's, that's the theme. And then, so Brad and I have actually talked about this theme disconnect a lot between the two of us. And I told him the other night at dinner, I was like, you know what? Maybe the designer was going for a real life you know, feeling of what it's like with climate change in the world. But I don't know how many of you are familiar with the billionaire space race happening in the U.S. But I'm like, this feels like we're Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or Richard Branson. And we're spending all of our money trying to advance space travel when we really could be spending our billions working together and with existing organizations 
and not polluting the world. Right, yeah, you know, <laughs> solve climate change, stand up a bunch of vaccine factories, do, do literally anything else with that money, honestly. So why, mystics, are you being like these billionaires? Why aren't we working together and saving all the creatures? Right, or at least as many as you can, right? Um, I have a I have a brew re-theme for you. Oh. Shamanistic drug cartels. Oh. <laughs> well, that just will raise the age quite a bit from 14 plus. Yes, yes. But hear me out on it, right? You're the leader. Your shaman's the leader. The dice are your soldiers, with the element dice being freelance mercenaries. And the creatures are kind of your specialized gang members you know they're your fixers your cleaners whatever and the potions are your product right so force control is obviously jockeying for turf right because you're in a in a gang war um i'm just saying i think it fits a little bit better i don't think it's going to fit with my need for cute i don't know yeah, that, that i would play that this probably game goes now. out the window but the arson <laughs> suddenly makes a lot more sense the arson definitely makes more <laughs> sense but i will say in fairness to brew this isn't the first disconnect so maybe it's in the small print of being a designer with pandasaurus Mm. because you and i talk about this when we play dinosaur island what are those hooligans doing yeah i we have a written review of dinosaur island on the website um and that's one of the points i made it's like how are these hooligans getting to an island are they all ex-navy seals or something what are they doing at this theme park it makes no sense and they have to go through the gate so why aren't they getting arrested well like i i i believe that they could probably sneak into the park once they're there but how are they getting there in the first place that's what i want to know and then you know we joke because i mean and we love dinosaur island and we love gods loves dinosaurs but i crack up every time my t-rex on god's loves dinosaurs eats a frog because i tell brad he's going to be a very skinny and starving t-rex i mean at least that you know is an abstract game so it's a little more abstracted all right i'll come back from my soapbox about (laughs) theme disconnect yeah i mean so i would have liked to see a little bit more reminder text on the potions for this game as well um they have reminder text on some of like the character abilities as an example like lello says you know place your die on top of somebody else's die for one energy berry do not gather right so you know you don't get to use that spot because you know that would probably be way too strong for one energy berry uh and so many of the potion effects are kind of like that as well where it's move this die to this other unclaimed force space and then you have to look in the manual to see if you gather or not right and we know now that you know this potion you don't do it this potion maybe you do or whatever and we've internalized that but it took a few games to get there and the only place where that is is in the manual and the potion art is lovely but if it was a little smaller you could have fit that reminder text right on the card and then i wouldn't have to go into the manual the first couple of games every time we use that potion to make sure that we were doing it right yeah i mean we've played it enough now i forgot about that but you're right that probably added some time to our first few games because i would and it also gave away my play because i'd be like so if i do this what does that mean and then brad would have to look it up so he would know he would be reminded that i had brewed this potion right 
several, you know, maybe two rounds ago and still had it in my hand. So I think that's a good point. I think the reminder text, if they do a, a reprint, would would be a benefit to the potions. Yeah, I mean, they, they definitely went for style over substance because the, the potion picture is nice and big, takes up almost the entire car, and then you've got the little bit of text of what it does right at the bottom. But you could just make that potion picture just a little bit smaller if it like two more lines of text. I would also request if they ever did a reprint, they didn't name, and I went looking when we were getting ready to, you know, do our notes for our podcast, I went looking for names of potions and names of creatures, and they're unnamed, so I would love to see, you know, little Arson Annie the fox that burns down the whole, like, (laughs) forest, uh, a a named creature, but, I mean, that's just, that's a personal preference, that's nothing wrong with the game itself. Sure. Any any last thoughts or ads on brew? Yeah, yeah, I do have one more point, I think. Um, I think that once the hype dies down, brew may have difficulty finding an audience to champion it. Um, and what I mean by that is it's not really a family game. There's too much conflict. There's too much minutia of you know, having to remember the various creature effects and, and potion effects and stuff like that. And I think the more invested hobby board gamer who potentially might like this kind of high conflict genre mashup type of game is going to be looking for something a bit longer to sink their teeth into a, a longer experience. Right. So that kind of puts brew in an interesting spot where I personally would definitely recommend Brew if you're okay with the level of conflict it offers, which can be quite high. But I don't know who I would recommend it to. Well, and we've talked about, we don't know who, I mean, we have some newer friends that we're playing board games with. Do we feel comfortable playing a game that could get super aggressive right Right. and i do want to add how you said it's not a family game i think brew is for ages 10 plus and i i always use our neighbors because they're the they're the only kids we play with other than our (laughs) haba games with jaina so you know they love animals so i don't know if they would be okay with the like arson and burning the you know burning the forest here right yeah and it's that weird thing where it's it's got that cutesy marketing and then a theme that somewhat doesn't work and somewhat is violent and you know gameplay that's really pretty hardcore when when you come right down to it you really got to know what you're signing up for and be okay with that level of interaction yeah so i mean and we have talked right now brew fits that niche for us we can easily knock it out when we only have an hour and we're tired and, you know, want to play a game during the week. But, you know, now that our board game table's here and we can set up our longer games and just shut it and open it and shut it and open it, I don't, I don't know. I like the mechanics and the way they play together enough that, you know, I'm willing to see if there's going to be any kind of expansion maybe that adds to the theme and some of the things I don't maybe love about it. But I don't know that it has a permanent spot on our shelf at this point. Yeah, and I think that's uh, where a lot of people are going to be. But... It's competitively priced, so you could pick it up, have your, you know, a dozen games with it or whatever, and then move it along and still get your value worth. And like I said, I definitely would recommend this game to the right type of gamer. I just don't know who that is uh, in our personal life right now. Well, 
Yeah, I think that's going to do it for us. You've been listening to Game Night with the Saints with us, your hosts, Jess and Brad St. Pierre. If you like what you just heard, please consider leaving us a review on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps. You can also follow us on Instagram at Saint Gamers or Twitter at Saint underscore Gamers to let us know what you think and be notified when the next episode goes live. We also have a Ko-Fi account linked at the bottom of the show notes if you feel like tossing us a couple of bucks to help offset the costs of running the podcast and website. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, remember, it's just a game.